0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I believe cybersecurity is having an identity crisis. You know, today's internet has become a place where almost anyone can claim to be you, and therefore they can claim ownership over your digital property. Hello, everyone, and
1: welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a segment on data brokers from last week tonight with John Oliver. I've got the story of the U.S. removing malware from systems around the globe. And later in the show, my conversation with Aaron Painter from NameTag. We're discussing innovations in online identity technology. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Hey everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative with splunk you can react quickly evolve faster and be ready for anything stay ahead of disruptions learn more at splunk.com resilience All right, Ben, uh, let's dig into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? I was a little tired of reading, so this week's story comes from YouTube. Uh,
2: (laughs) It is rare that the issues we cover on this podcast really get into the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh, But here we are. So this week's segment on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver was about data brokers. Uh, So the first 20 minutes or or so of the segment was an overview of how data brokers operate. Uh, Where the data comes from originally, so a little history of cookies and all of the breadcrumbs we leave in in, uh, our online interactions, Mm -hmm. Uh, the purpose of data brokers, who they are, uh, what their intention is, the extent to which they can collect our data and put together a pretty clear picture of our lives and sell them uh, to the highest bidder, and uh, how... Their promises to anonymize the data, as we've talked about a million times, don't actually mean much when it's very easy with minimal research to figure out which data uh, belongs to which person. Right. Uh, He mentioned a couple of things that we haven't talked about as much on uh, our show. One – One of the later parts of this segment is about why our political system hasn't solved this problem. Hmm. You'd think that people would be relatively outraged at their data, uh, sometimes very personal data, being sold. Right. Uh, And, you know, Europe has taken action with GDPR to an extent. And several states uh, within the United States have taken action as well. He questions why the federal government hasn't taken action, and Mm. he posits uh, a couple of reasons. The first is that uh, data brokers are very powerful politically. They have a lot of money. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm always unsure about whether we overstate or understate the influence of money in politics, Mm -hmm. uh, but that's his hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And the second, and this is a really good point, is political campaigns make use of data brokers. They buy this data themselves to do what's called micro-targeting, where in order to pick up votes, you get a bunch of information, a dossier, if you will, on an individual voter. So Dave in Maryland is – I'm not going to say your real age, but this age. (laughs) A man of a certain
1: age. A man of a certain age. These are his interests. Enjoys musical theater, cybersecurity, and the Muppets.
2: Exactly. That describes you purposely, uh, perfectly. Here are uh, all the beers he drinks. Here are his purchasing habits. Right. And that's very useful information to political campaigns because they can target you specifically with online advertising.
1: Right, right. So
2: they know which buttons to push to get certain demographics to come out to vote. And the way they decide what ad to put on your Facebook page is going to depend on what information they can glean from data brokers. Right. So that was really interesting. I mean, I think that's a point that is that we haven't really talked about too much is why there is maybe some reticence to do
1: this at the federal level. And yeah. his hypothesis <laughs> well, is... Yeah. Well, but I mean, it, it, I have to say, it, it is an ongoing frustration of mine, and I suspect most uh, most thinking people that how often uh, legislators exclude themselves from the laws that they pass. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, and how many times they've been called out on it. I right. mean, sometimes right. the attacks on it are in bad faith. Like they, there was a whole thing about how they excluded themselves from the Affordable Care Act when really that was about them being on their own. A healthcare system, and yeah. it got very complicated. But sometimes like this, there are pretty good reasons to criticize them right. when they are quite dependent on data brokers to run their political campaigns. Yeah. The other point he brought up, which I think is always worth emphasizing, is there's an attitude among many of us that we are an open book. I like the convenience of going to a webpage. They know everything about me. They can tailor their ads towards me and my interests. Uh, when I go to a website that I like, my credentials are already there. They know what my favorite sports teams are. I can get the latest news articles on those sports teams. Right. That's great for certain people. Yeah. The point that John Oliver makes is even if it doesn't affect you, you're not thinking about the people that it does affect. Victims of domestic violence, for example, mm-hmm. where uh, somebody's in hiding or trying to protect themselves from somebody dangerous – Sometimes it's through a data broker where stalkers can get information on an individual. Or when we're talking about the federal government or state and local governments purchasing data, which they can do from these brokers without a warrant, Mm. that means they can target people for deportation or charging them with crimes without any individualized suspicion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a point that's so important. I I think so many people have the attitude – I'm an open book. I don't care what people know about me. Right. I care primarily about
1: convenience. I saw one this week that's a a lighter example of this, but it was a a gentleman who uh, was about to ask his uh, girlfriend to marry him. Uh, And so he had gone out and purchased uh, the engagement ring, right? And a few days later in the mail... Uh, got an envelope in the mail that said congratulations on your recent engagement. Ooh. Uh yeah. And uh and he, he was living with his girlfriend. She saw the envelope and ruined the surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go.
2: Yeah, there are so many funny anecdotes about that. The one that John Oliver has in the story is a single guy who uh, went to purchase baby wipes because his company bought a new office. Now, I don't know why he's cleaning his office with baby wipes, oh. uh, but he is. <laughs> I would have gotten Lysol wipes myself. but uh, And all of a sudden, he started getting all all these advertisements for baby products, and of course, yeah, right. no interest in them. Right. Uh, yeah, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. I just think this is a problem that isn't frequently discussed. And so to We've talked about it, and as much as I like to think that we can control the conversation around data privacy issues, I think sometimes you need something like a comedian doing a 30-minute segment to really get this into, like I said, the cultural zeitgeist. And I saw it happen with Edward Snowden and uh, national security surveillance. Hmm. He did a segment in 2015. I show it the first day every time I teach a class on this. Uh, It's informed, it's interesting, it's hilarious, it's vulgar. This is the type of way that you can start discussions about these uh, serious issues. And then there's the kicker to all of this, which uh, I I think uh, we'd want to allude to by playing a a quick segment.
1: All right, so here's a clip. Uh, This is from last week tonight with John Oliver.
3: Uh, Let's play the clip. Interestingly... The one time that Congress has acted quickly to safeguard people's privacy was in the 1980s, when Robert Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court and a reporter walked into a local video store and asked the manager whether he could have a peek at Bork's video rental history, and he got it. As soon as Congress realized there was nothing stopping anyone from retrieving their video rental records too, they freaked the out, (laughs) and lo and behold, the Video Privacy Protection Act was passed with quite deliberate speed. So it seems when Congress's own privacy is at risk, they somehow find a way to act. And it also seems like they're not entirely aware just how easy it is for anyone. And I do mean anyone to get their personal information, which brings me to me. Because in researching this story, we realized there is any number of perfectly legal bits of that we could engage in we could for example uh use data brokers to go fishing for members of congress by creating a demographic group consisting of men aged 45 and up in a five mile radius of the u.s Capitol who had previously visited sites regarding or searched for terms including divorce massage hair loss and midlife crisis we could we could call that group Congress and Cabernet, and then target that list with ads that might attract those men to click, like marriage shouldn't be a prison, or can you vote twice? We could also throw in, do you want to read Ted Cruz's erotic fan fiction, just to see what would happen. And if anyone clicked, we'd be able to harvest even more data from them, which we could then theoretically take steps to de-anonymize. Now, am I saying that we're actually going to do that? Collect all that raw information and store it in, let's say, a manila envelope somewhere. Well, I am sorry to disappoint you. We are not going to do that. Why would we, when we have already done it? Because all that raw data is currently right in here. And honestly, this whole exercise was creepy. If you're thinking, How on earth is any of this legal? I totally agree with you. It shouldn't be. And if you happen to be a legislator who is feeling a little nervous right now about whether your information is in this envelope and you are terrified about what I might do with it, you might want to channel that worry into making sure that I can't do anything. Anyway, sleep well. That's our show. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Good night.
1: Oh, so good! <laughs> it's so good. You'd li- you'd love to think that people
2: in uh, who work at the Capitol are terrified, and that at least one person at the U.S. Capitol, whether that is a staff person or a member of Congress, was actually baited to click on Ted Cruz erotica fan fiction. <laughs> That's right. So let me ask. Well, a couple things. First of all, uh, Ben, is blackmail illegal? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a harder question to answer than you think. It kind of depends on the context. Right. I mean, he, he also wasn't directly blackmailing them. Yeah. There's, there's no specific ask here. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes this so hilarious is, mm-hmm. huh, maybe you should think about changing the policy because now we have all of this potentially incriminating information on you in our manila folder. Right. Now you can at least temporarily realize what everyone else thinks and feels when their data is collected. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a taste of their own medicine. It's not a direct threat, but it's one of those in a very comedic way saying uh, the tables have turned.
1: Yeah. I also think it's, it's uh, interesting how uh, coming at something like this comedically helps break down those barriers that people have. It's hard to be defensive when you're laughing.
2: Right. I mean, I. it's also just hard to listen to any 30-minute segment about anything if it's not mildly entertaining. Mm. Uh, as much as I think our podcast is extremely entertaining, uh, <laughs> it's right. and it according, is—
1: According to our moms. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> we don't have the same type of comedic writers, and maybe this is our problem, uh, but that he does. Right. And it's a way where— you can illustrate the issue that makes it relatable to people who didn't know anything about data brokers. I mean, I think one thing that comes out of this is even though 60% of people in the poll that uh, John Oliver cites on his show claim to know that their data is being collected and they're kind of okay with that risk, there's still 40% of people who don't. Mm -hmm. And I still think that among those 60%, I don't think people realize the extent of it. How much is out there and who can gain access to it? It's not just private companies, although the private companies do have uh, a lot of information on what we do, what we like to do, what we purchase. Um, But also the fact that we now have documented examples of government agencies buying up this data, things that are very personal like location data and using it against us in a legal proceeding, I just don't think people are properly aware of this practice. You can write all the articles and Vice, but motherboard by, by Vice as as you want. Yeah. Um. But there's something about it being in a 30-minute comedy segment on HBO that I think is really going to do wonders and bring this to the forefront.
1: Yeah. Well, we can hope, right? <laughs> we sure can. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we will have a link uh, to that uh, clip on YouTube, Uh, as Ben says. It's uh, just under a half an hour long, and uh, I know John Oliver's not for everybody, but uh, I think this one's worth checking out. makes a a lot of good points in here. All right, my story this week, uh, this comes from the New York Times. This is an article by Kate Conger and uh, David E. Sanger, uh, and it's titled, U.S. Says It Secretly Removed Malware Worldwide, Preempting Russian Cyber Attacks. Uh, So basically what this comes down to is that um, sort of uh, in the run-up to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the U.S. got uh, judicial permission. A (laughs) secret judicial order. secret judicial approval uh, to go into computers around the world and worked with uh, international partners – And removed malware that would enable botnets, which would enable these computers to do all sorts of things, install other malware, uh, run uh, distributed denial-of-service attacks, those sorts of things. Um, And so the U.S. federal government went around, the the folks on the cyber side of our government, uh, and removed this, shut down these botnets, basically – disrupted their ability to communicate with uh, with their motherships their command and control servers the things that give them the instructions I'm of what to the do picturing poor botnet trying to
2: communicate with his mothership and just being so devastated
1: that, <laughs> sad and lonely mm-hmm. uh, wondering where where did, where did everybody go Mom. Yeah. <laughs> um so uh and 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 by all accounts this was successful and is certainly um Certainly a stain on, on Russia's uh, capabilities in, in the cyber realm, and I think it's fair to say so far a lot of people are still scratching their heads over the fact that we haven't seen more cyber operations from Russia. Right, uh, That could change the, as we're recording this, of course. Could, could change at any moment, but uh, something that was, I think, a lot of people expected them to lead with, and they have not. Right. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, But let's talk to the issue at hand for us here, which is that uh, the U.S. government went into other people's systems, private companies around the world, let themselves in, (laughs) looked around, did the things they needed to do, left, uh, most likely without letting anybody know they were even there. And we're okay with this. <laughs> I am so conflicted on this, Dave. Okay,
2: as I care deeply about digital privacy. Right, I think it's very important. Uh, we are talking about potential attacks on our critical infrastructure. Yeah, uh, and Russia was was willing, is willing, and is able to wreak destruction on our water systems, our uh, power plants, our electronic grids, there's a price we have to pay to protect those systems. Mm-hmm. And it, it depends on what price you're willing to pay. To me, going through a court order to go onto devices to delete botnets is a small enough price to pay mm-hmm. uh, in order to stop these uh, cyber, cyber attacks In a time of war, Uh, especially after our diplomatic relationship with Russia broke down uh, in the weeks preceding the armed conflict in Ukraine. Uh, They were already – the Russian intelligence GRU was already uh, trying to use malware against their Ukrainian adversaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we know to a certain extent that they have that capability. Uh, And we know that they've used weapons, cyber weapons in the past – um, they've deployed them here. They've deployed them in Syria and 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 other places. Uh, if this had been done without a court order, and we don't have access to the actual court order, so I don't know exactly what's contained in there, I would be more concerned. I mean, it it is an intrusive thing to do, mm-hmm. uh, but at least it should be some comfort that there was a judge or a magistrate who looked at this. Um, looked at the legal justification for doing this, balance the potential invasion of privacy with uh, the amount of security that this would bring. What
1: would be the legal justification for doing this? What if you were saying, "I need legal, I need a legal backstop here"? How how would you come at this?
2: So there are a, a bunch of ways. I mean, there are emergency provisions in various laws, including the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, that. Uh, in certain circumstances would allow us to go onto people's devices and networks. Mm. Um, there are also uh, other causes of actions. I mean, you can get creative using things like the all Writs act mm. uh, to compel telecommunications companies to, um, you know, in the, in the name of national security, take some sort of measure to protect uh, computers and networks. Mm. Uh, So there are certainly laws that allow you to do this, again, without actually having seen the court order. I don't know what their um, legal justification was, but there certainly are tools available to them. Mm. And there's a lot you can do when you get a court order. Uh, I mean, we talk a lot about warrantless searches of people's devices. Those are problematic because they're warrantless. Mm -hmm. If you get judicial approval, I mean, we allow all different types of intrusive searches and and seizures uh, of our data, of our digital data. Uh, so if there is some sort of law enforcement or national security interest, depending on uh, how strong the security needs are and what our cybersecurity demands are, you can justify it if you can show that you're minimizing the effect on people's digital privacy. Right. Uh, it's part of a balancing test. Uh, and that's why the word reasonable is very important when we're talking about the Fourth Amendment. Courts do this reasonableness analysis, um, sometimes in the absence of of a warrant, but even with a warrant. To determine whether a program like this is reasonable, you do have to engage in this kind of balancing test. And when we're talking about things as dangerous as shutting down our critical infrastructure, I think it's a it's reasonable for a court to conclude that under that balancing test, this can be justified.
1: So uh, what, what if any types of guardrails are put on something like this? In other words, let's say uh, the government uh, in good faith goes in to remove some malware. While they're in there, they happen upon something that uh, attracts their attention, something that perhaps other parts of government law enforcement would be very interested in knowing about. I feel like the plain view doctrine comes in there as long
2: as the original search is legal. Okay. I mean, if I uh, got a warrant to search your house for evidence of tax fraud Mm -hmm. and there was a crack pipe on your kitchen table, Mm -hmm. I could prosecute you for seeing that crack pipe because it was out in the open. It was in there even though it wasn't the object of the original search. Mm. Uh, So as long as the search itself is legal Mm -hmm. uh, and you're – only you—you you are engaging in surveillance pursuant to the original authorization. Then, if you find evidence of illegal behavior, that's certainly fair game for some sort of judicial proceeding.
1: Mm-hmm. How are the uh, the folks uh, you know the 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 usual suspects in terms of uh, civil libertarians responding to this? Is, is they because we got uh, because we convinced the judges? Is is are they? you know, staying on the sidelines on this one or where, where do we stand?
2: I have not seen the type of pushback that I have seen uh, in somewhat similar circumstances. And mm-hmm. I think that's because of the particular factors at play here. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have the vice president for intelligence at CrowdStrike analyzing the malware, linking the malware to Russia and saying that Russian organizations were intending to cause damage to our Infrastructure and aid Russian military objectives and you go and get a court order, I don't think that's going to raise the ire that much of the Electronic Frontier Foundation yeah. or the ACLU. It's a strong case. <laughs> it is. <laughs> right, right. They, I think there is more fertile ground for them to fight on. Now, they, they. I'm sure if they got access to the judicial order, there there could be holes that they could poke through, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they'll be doing FOIA requests to get access to anything they can. Mm. Um, but I'm not seeing the type of pushback on this that I've seen in similar circumstances. I think it's just when you take it in the context of what's happening around the world, uh, I think it takes on a different meaning and I think it's less offensive than it otherwise would be to these types of organizations. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. All right. Well, again, uh, that story is from the New York Times, uh, written by uh, Kate Conger and David E. Sanger. We will have a link to that in our show notes. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Painter. He's from an organization called NameTag, and they are in the digital identity business, as their name implies. Um, And our discussion centers on some of the developments that are going on when it comes to online identity technology. Here's my conversation with Aaron Painter.
0: I believe cybersecurity is having an identity crisis. Today's internet has become a place where almost anyone can claim to be you, and therefore they can claim ownership over your digital property. The way I see the perspective of historical context is that in the early days of networked computing, usernames and passwords became the way that people identified themselves, and passwords were the way that you protected that access to your identity. But passwords are not passports, Perhaps it was once a smaller group of people back then, but despite billions of people now using the internet and all other aspects of technology having evolved in the last 50 or 60 years, online authentication has not kept pace. Security is a much bigger challenge, as many of your listeners know. And passwords can take many forms, and while they're still convenient, they're not keeping people safe. SMS messages, email links, authenticator apps, and the like, all are trying to make the humble password more secure, but none of them prove the real owner of the account. And efforts to check identity are often one time, a scan an ID because I'm opening a bank account for something like KYC. Um, but even if I've done that, when I go to access that bank account or maybe do a transfer or some other important transaction, I'm often stuck back to knowledge-based questions or uh, asking for a password. And they're they're very limited in what they can do. The best is often someone showing up in person still, or asking to fax a copy of a, an identity document with a signature on it. They're not keeping people safe because while well, you might know that someone holds the device, you don't often know who the owner of that device is.
1: You know, I, I think um, we see studies that have shown that you know, compared to a regular uh, username and password combination, that adding that additional factor. Uh, really does make a difference, and we've certainly seen a, a shift to prioritize that or emphasize that, you know, throughout the industry. So, in in what way is that coming up short? You know, if I'm having something like a YubiKey or I have a you know a verification app on my mobile device, does that get me most of the way there, or is there still more to go?
0: You know, one of the biggest challenges or limitations of that we're often finding is. Ownership matters, particularly when a user gets locked out of that 2FA or MFA approach. Typically, it's a lost phone or an email account. And when that happens, it's nearly impossible to ensure the only the account's rightful owner gets back in. And that creates a massive security vulnerability because fraudsters can claim they're the ones locked out and they're in need of a password reset. There's often not a simple password reset button in a world when MFA has been enabled, and the burden of proof that often falls on that rightful account owner to convince the company that it's really their account. Again, often using primitive methods and tools, uh, sometimes resulting in a person needing to even show up in person to prove it's really them.
1: What about you know things like um, Face ID or, or Touch ID? I, I think uh, a lot of us have a positive experience with those systems. Where do they? What are the pros and cons
0: there? They can be really effective, and Face ID and password managers have certainly made our lives easier in a world when we just have so many accounts that we all work with. The the limitation, though, is that even Face ID most often is used essentially as a keychain. It's used as a way to enter in someone's password that's been saved. Very few accounts are able to rely only on that encryption key that's sent from that iOS device over to the provider as a way to authenticate the person. They need to still have some other form of password backup because you're accessing maybe from an app on your mobile phone one day, you're accessing a site another day on your, uh, on your desktop browser. And then things happen like getting locked out of that account. Maybe you've lost the phone. If a company has begun to only trust the encryption key that's sent from Face ID, then if you've lost that phone, it's incredibly difficult to actually recover you, the authentic owner of that account. And again, it falls back to needing to prove someone's identity.
1: So where do we go then? I I know you all are are, uh, active uh, participators in this game. Where do you suppose uh, the future
0: lies? We've created something we feel uh, makes accounts more secure. And we call it, in, in simple terms for an end user, sign in with ID as opposed to simply signing in with the username and password. The technology underlying that we think is a level beyond MFA or multi-factor authentication, such that we call it multi-factor identity. And it allows a user to create a reusable sense of identity linked to the government ID, a selfie. We match the photo of your selfie to your government ID, and we keep that reusable and stored inside the secure enclave on your phone so that you can use it in an ongoing way when you're accessing an account when you're prompted maybe by various companies to validate the actual ownership of your account.
1: Is this the the sort of fantasy of, you
0: know, one, one login to rule them all? We believe that each login is still unique, and you should almost have the equivalent of a receipt for it, or be in the ability to control, hey, I've given this bit of data or these login authentication to a particular site. But part of that is involving consent from the user as part of the security transaction today often the best case is a company trying to guess maybe that you're the user who is called in or is trying to access an online site maybe they reference back end sources maybe they try and look up the phone number you're calling from but the the end user is often not a part of that consent path so we've created a way for the company to essentially prompt the user to say hey i want to make sure you're a real person i want to make sure you're the real account owner but yeah that should be reusable when you put the consumer in control of that information
1: and so how would something like this work you know from a user's point of view uh, if I wanted to use a system like yours to access something online, can you walk us through the process?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really simple flow. Uh, essentially, a company, you'd be clicking on a button on a website or uh, maybe on your mobile phone or inside an app. If it's actually on a desktop browser, we've, we've implemented QR code-based logins. So instead of a username and password, you scan a QR code. Regardless if it's a tap on the web, on the mobile app or scanning a QR code, The next thing that happens is a a, a box pops up using this really neat technology from Apple called App Clips, uh, Android's companion one with Instant Apps. So essentially a mini authenticator app like Instrument is downloaded over the air into the user's phone so it feels like it's a native part of the OS and pops up, asks the user to scan their government-issued ID, to do a selfie check, and then provides real clarity asking the user for consent to share pieces of the information from their government ID with the company. The button illuminates once they put in the information and they simply click login, and the users are authenticated into that site or app experience. It minimizes and the user continues on with whatever they were hoping to achieve.
1: So so I hold up my my ID, let's say in this case, you know, my driver's license. And so that gets scanned and then it asks me to take a selfie and, and it compares those two photos.
0: That's exactly right. And among some other steps, including validating, you know, is that ID uh, valid and accurate, a few steps in, in that regard. And then we look at other parameters. But from the end-user perspective, they feel like they're really using primarily the government-issued ID and their selfie to match.
1: And is it when you do the selfie part, is it checking to make sure that this is a real live person here and I didn't, you know, scrape a photo of of, of me off the Internet?
0: It is. And a variety of other increasingly really cool kind of anti fraud techniques and that's part of the reason why we bounce the user to their mobile phone as opposed to being able to use a desktop camera. there's so much advanced technology in today's modern mobile phones, from depth mapping, the types of cameras, the secure enclave um, that make it a much more robust experience, all data that we can leverage to help authenticate the identity of the person to make sure they match to that ID
1: you know something that uh, my co-host Ben and I have talked about in terms of um you know policy and privacy is uh You know, let's say I go to a bar or someplace like that, and I'm there, I want to get in, and I hand the person my driver's license. Well, they have access to all the information on that driver's license. Um, It intrigues me what you're talking about here that this puts me in control of which information I want to share.
0: I completely agree with you. And we love that analogy. We talk about it a lot. You know, sometimes those bouncers, while they might be well intended, are not always people that you want necessarily to know your home address or other things, when the only question they're trying to ask is, are you of age, or are you 21 plus to come into that bar? And we believe firmly whether it's in the bar scenario or online platforms, uh, privacy does not need to mean anonymity. There are use cases where it's great to be anonymous and you might want to go spin up a new Gmail address and log in as a new person. But there's so many important transactions that occur today online, and you need a sense of actually knowing who the real owner of an account is in many of those scenarios. We call this technology a privacy mask. And so it allows a, a user to, even though you've scanned or uploaded your ID and we're doing that matching, it doesn't mean you need to share all the elements on the ID. In fact, you might not even need to share your birth date in that bar example. You might only need to share that you're 21 plus. So the user gets a chance to review what's being asked by the company and then consent specifically to sharing that information.
1: What about for folks who might be uh, hesitant to scan in their official government ID? What's going on behind the scenes to protect that?
0: We have a really uh, robust privacy policy that we're really proud of. Uh, We summarize it in 10 words, essentially that we only share information when you specifically ask us to. Uh, And we've assembled a really strong team of cybersecurity professionals who have made their lives and careers out of this. Part of it, too, is the benefit to be able to build a new product and infrastructure in today's day and age and use kind of all the latest bells and whistles of cloud computing and the secure enclave and a variety of other tools. We have a lot of steps to secure the information and then a really uh, proactive way that we're both achieving consent or obtaining consent from the user and allowing them to protect the privacy of what they're sharing.
1: Now, with a system like yours, what about for the folks on the other side? If I'm someone who wants to accept your you know, system as as a form of ID, what do I have to do on my website?
0: Incredibly easy to implement. We've essentially built on standards like OAuth and OpenID Connect 2.0. It's essentially as easy as a login with Google button um, to put integrate into your infrastructure. But then there's some other really fun things in how we've designed this that we're really proud of in that uh, a company doesn't necessarily need to store the PII that they're asking for from that user. In fact, we have the ability for a company to choose to store no PII. We act as the guarantor of that. The user has given consent for what elements they share, but a company can essentially just store almost an encrypted key in their CRM or other system that doesn't have any underlying PII data in it, but has the ability to call on that data from name tag whenever they need it.
1: And where are we headed in terms of adoptions of, of this sort of thing? I mean, it, you, you all have this system. Is this is it exclusive to you? Are are there standards in this space? Where where do we sit with that?
0: We've built on as many industry standards as we can find, but we've combined things in a way that hasn't been previously combined. Uh, So we're really excited about the use case implementations for this. Um, The the use cases end up being quite consistent. It's often continuous account access in a more secure way. Let's say every time you're logging into maybe a dating site or uh, an, an account of value to you. And then also account recovery, where there are organizations that have implemented maybe MFA or a higher level of security on the password. But then again, that user gets locked out and they need to do essentially an ID validation to help reset that account or access to that account. So account recovery and continuous account access seem to be the, the most consistent use cases we hear from companies and organizations.
1: Yeah, it really seems to take care of that issue where if you lose your mobile device, you know, the nightmare that that can be of having to reset all of those authentication apps and, <laughs> who you know, that list of 10 codes that you
0: printed out and stored somewhere, right? It's exactly right. That, that's a nightmare, unfortunately, for both sides. Because again, the burden often falls on the user to prove it's really them, and the companies are struggling. We hear between seven, sometimes fourteen days. You know, you're locked out of an account, and a company just kind of throws their hands in the air, like, like that emoji, my favorite. I don't know what to do. How do we really make sure this is you? Uh, and that's a, right. a, a complex process that today just doesn't have an easy way. Um, We built an easy way, but then you get into, well, can't I just use that same level of assurance every time I'm logging in and provide a greater level of confidence to both sides that the authentic owner is the one getting into that account? And that's what we've tried to build.
1: Where do you suppose we're ultimately headed with this? I mean, you have, you know, the system that you all have developed here. Can you envision a time in the not too distant future when usernames and passwords are a thing of the past?
0: I think that future would allow a greater sense of security on all sides. I think access is, is really one of the greatest threat vectors into a system or a network or, you know, an account if I'm an end user. The wrong person getting in has just detrimental consequences for everyone involved. The cost of fraud for the company and then that risk of identity theft. In fact, this is what sort of led me in the first place to get this team together and, and build NameTag. I had friends and family members who had become victims of identity theft early in the pandemic and it led to some really dire consequences. And when I tried to help them recover and I went to check my own accounts, I, I, it was the start of the pandemic, I couldn't go into a branch, but it felt like the dark ages. I could do almost everything from my mobile phone, except actually prove who I really was. And so of course my accounts were insecure. And unfortunately my friends and family were great numbers. It almost some by some accounts, almost half the country has had their identity stolen in the U.S., for example. Um, that's just not a, a, a safe infrastructure for for any system.
1: All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting.
2: I love how he called it an identity crisis in the online identity world. Mm. (laughs) Uh, But it's, it's, it's a really interesting history. I mean, I think for the last 20 years or so, our assumptions about the safety and security of usernames and passwords has slowly eroded mm. as the bad guys have gotten more sophisticated, mm-hmm. and the things that have protected us in the past, like security questions, aren't as secure as we originally thought. Um, so mm. the field is rapidly expanding, and I think we're we are getting better. I mean, multi-factor authentication is a real game changer. Yeah. Um, so I. I I found the interview kind of encouraging in that regard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Aaron Painter from NameTag for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash That's a-k-a-dot-m-s-slash-fed-cyber. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.